Welcome, glad you're here. Let me pray and we will dive in. Jesus, thank you for tonight. Thank you for a chance to be together as your people. Thank you for a chance to learn, to grow, to engage, and to uh, seek to understand the way that you have made us, the way that you've made the world, the way that you have ordained sexuality. God, in all these things, we want to seek you. As we talked about at the end of last week, we want to uh, come to you willing to say uh, that um, we're, we're willing to do whatever it is that you call us to do. We want to uh, submit ourselves to you. And so, God, would you come and teach us, show us, lead us, and um, in the midst of all that's said, would you seal truth to our hearts? As I often pray each weekend, I pray now that the words of my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but the words of your spirit would remain. God, in this important topic, particularly in our world today, help us to hear your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Welcome. Uh, there are note sheets over there on that little wooden stool. If you did not grab one on the way in, you can grab one right now. Um, mostly that's just going to allow me to buzz through qu quotes really quick without you having to bring out uh, phones. And you can fill in the blanks. So some of you, that's really exciting. Um, if you didn't bring a pencil, you do get doc points. So, so that is, yeah, that's the way it goes. Yeah, that's it. Cameron's so sad. Yeah, anyway, yeah, too bad. Uh, just, a, not, just a quick reminder of ground rules. There will be a text number and an email up on the screen. So if you have any questions at all, please feel free to send to that. I'll be getting those through the day today, as, and we'll hit those um, as we get to the end. And um, I'll kind of be checking them as we go. So if you want to uh, send to that, that would be super helpful. Um, like I said at the beginning, this is going to be roughly 50% teaching, 50% Q&A. Um, I looked at the amount of material I had for tonight and eh, maybe 60-40 or 70-30. We'll see. We'll, we'll see what we do. We'll see, it. we'll see where it goes. All right, so just quick review from last week. So predominantly last week we talked about five significant shifts that have happened over the last six, six decades as it relates to our sexuality. Sex becoming disconnected from procreation, becoming disconnected from marriage, becoming disconnected from the male-female relationship, disconnected from love, emotion, relational commitment, and becoming disconnected from people. That's still kind of in its early stages, but um, the process is unfolding. If that sounds crazy to you, um, you can talk to me later. Or um, at the end of this, uh, all four sessions, we are going to release a podcast that uh, will have all of the audio. So you're able to go back and listen to that if that would be helpful to you. So you can go back and uh, jump into that. I'm going to start tonight just reading a couple of scripture passages. Uh, we'll start in Matthew chapter 5. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. And then turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church, um, maybe even including the current reality in the United States. Uh, Corinth, still the most sexualized culture in uh, history, or one of them at least. So I'm going to start in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be nominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. That's in quotation marks. We'll get back to that. And God will destroy both one and the other. 
The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that, it is, that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. What the whole of scriptures is going to talk about as it relates to our sexuality is that sex is like a wildfire and it will consume what's in front of it if it's not controlled. And uh, Jesus talks about being really, really serious about the way we manage our sexual impulses to the extent that he uses imagery like gouge out your eye and cut off your hand and some of those really graphic things. Paul lays it out really, really clearly in a, um, in a culture where the typical act of worship, I mean, just get this in your head, it's crazy to think about, the typical act of worship was to go have a sexual encounter with a temple prostitute. That was how you worshiped the gods of Corinth. Um, he says, flee from all sexual immorality, run away from it, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm not gonna walk through these texts like I would on a Sunday morning in uh, an expositional fashion, but what I want you to see is the um, the seriousness with which the Bible takes sexuality, because for what we're going to talk about tonight, I want to set the stage to, for us to say this is significant. This isn't just something that, like, um, yeah, we should probably pay attention to this among some other things. Uh, the the Bible is really clear that uh, sexual sin has the same end as all other sins. Sin leads to death. But sexual sin should be taken far more seriously because of the control that it exerts over us and because of the level of consequence that it has. And that's not just consequence, that's external, that's internal consequence. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And uh, he talks very, very clearly, like, don't, don't you understand that by being united with a prostitute, for instance, you're becoming one flesh, there's something spiritual that's happening here. So what I want you to hear is that this is taken really, really seriously. And here's the other side. So that's one side. The other side I want you to hear is that in a room like this, there are lots and lots and lots of backgrounds and stories and history. That's all part of it. We're wrestling in different ways, and we're struggling with all kinds of different things. Um, if we were to do surveys, we would find that in some instances we have been victims and in some instances, we have been victimizers, and most of us have been both over time. That's the story of our sexuality. And so how do we bring ourselves and including our sexuality and ask God to form us? That's really the question I want to wrestle with tonight. So tonight, we're really going to kind of dig into the idea of sexual formation, what it is, and uh, why, it's, uh, why it's so important. And so um, I want to start with two broad categories, the way people tend to view sexuality from a, I'm going to call it a pseudo-Christian perspective, things that you would hear within different, uh, different sides of the church. So the first one, I'm going to give you a category, and I'm going to give you uh, two equations that go with that category. So the first category is this, fear your desire, fear your desire. 
There's this sense that what's in us is so strong, you should be afraid of it. You should uh, tamp it down. You should uh, do everything that you can do to run away from it because you're not going to be able to manage it. Some of you know the, uh, the, the name Jerome throughout antiquity. Jerome was the one who translated the Greek New Testament into Latin, actually the entire scriptures uh, into Latin. So the Latin Vulgate came from Jerome. Uh, the other thing that came from Jerome is a repressive sexual ethic. Jerome had a journey of constantly being plagued by uh, sexual fantasy, and he could not get away from it. Uh, he would go through seasons where he would fast for literally like four, five, six weeks. And uh, he would say, even in the midst of that fast, my body is as good as dead, but the lust in my heart is as strong as ever. Like, he just could not get away from it. And because of how for formative Jerome was on the church, uh, from Jerome's time on, there's been at least a swath of the church who have said, stay away from your desire. Fear your desire. It's scary. You need to, you need to stay away from it. So today, the dominant worldview adopted by what I would call the evangelical church, the, the, the faithful church of America, um, the faithful church around the world, the dominant worldview would be fear your desire. Um, keep, keep it repressed, hold it back. That's really, really dangerous. And so, uh, so keep, it, keep, it, um, keep it tamped down. Um, through the Middle Ages, uh, it's a kind, of, kind of humorous and you can do your own study at some point. They, uh, there, there were certain days of the week that you were not allowed to have a sexual encounter with your spouse. So this is um, married sexuality. Um, during uh, fast days, you couldn't have a sexual encounter. During feast days, you couldn't have sexual encounters. You couldn't have uh, any kind of sexual activity uh, on the Sabbath. And then there were also certain other holidays along with certain feast days. Uh, in fact, um, uh, there, there was a theologian, relatively modern theologian, who did all of the research and said as best that he could understand there were 44 days a year that married couples could have sex. So I, I guess you better mark those on the calendar, you know what I'm saying? Like, make sure you hit those at least. So, um, so, so there was this, this struggle that's been throughout the centuries with sexuality. And so the equation that fear your desire says to us is that moral standards plus willpower equal holiness. If I just hold a high enough moral standard and I, uh, I hold real tight and I grip my teeth, I will ultimately make it to holiness. The way that we tend to present God is that he's the great spoil sport to sexuality. Like I have these drives, but God won't let me do anything with them, so that's just kind of the way it works. Uh, we forget, of course, that God was the inventor of our sexuality and that he is the one who put it all together. He actually um, not only enjoys it, but ordains it. He has laid that out for us. But um, we, we instead push back against our desires, and we try to figure out ways to medicate our sexual desires. Now, that may seem odd to you, but think about when you are struggling with sexuality and you don't have what you find to be a morally appropriate place to put it, what do you do? Well, it may be busyness. I'm just going to like fill my life with something, a hobby of some kind that I can throw myself into. Um, I can connect with friends, and, and that can be good and healthy. And none of those things are necessarily bad, but there are times where amorally, uh, not bad or good, just things that we do, we medicate our sexuality because we have these drives and we want to tamp them down. Our, our goal is to try to kind of 
to settle them down. But the reality is nothing actually works because statistically the church runs almost identical rates. Not quite as bad as the culture, but the church runs almost identical rates in things like pornography use and addiction, uh, adultery, uh, affairs that are happening, uh, broken marriages, uh, all of the, um, the outworkings of our sexual brokenness, the statistics remain very close. The church is slightly better than the rest of the world, but it's not, it's, it's not dramatic. And so the, the, the other challenge is, because of the way that we view our sexuality, if you have this idea, fear your desire, moral standard plus willpower equals holiness, when you fail, yes, when you fail, um, it's connected with so much shame that you end up pushing it down, you never become, you never show anybody who you actually are because if you told somebody that you did that or you thought that or you acted like that, what would they ever think? And so then what happens is you have this cycle that you go into where love, which is at the core of your sexuality, is what you're designed to receive. And when people love you, so Dan expresses love in a godly, healthy, brotherly way towards me, but I know that I haven't told Dan who I really am. I know that I've effectively been lying to him by pretending to be somebody I'm not. Well, then I can't receive the love that Dan's offering to me because when he loves me in an honest, effective, biblical way, I know that person he loves doesn't exist. He wouldn't love me if he knew, but I'll never find out because I'll never actually tell him. See what happens? So what, what ends up happening is the cycle gets worse. So what happens? So because I've looked at pornography, I won't tell somebody I've looked at pornography. Now I can't receive love, and because I can't receive love, what do I do? Go look at more pornography, right? The cycle just continues. So in reality, although the equation is moral standard plus willpower equals holiness, in reality, it's moral standards plus willpower equals failure. We, we can't do it that way. It doesn't work that way. Fearing your desire does not work. But some people on the other side of the spectrum say, forget about fearing your desire. We've repressed our sexuality for far too long. That's all because of the Puritans and the way the Puritans brought our uh, sexual ethic over here to the U.S. We need to stop fearing our desire. Instead, we need to follow our desire. We need to follow our desire. So we customize our lives based on our sexual preference, whatever it is. This is what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 6, the body for the food and the food for the body. Like, I'm hungry, so I eat. I'm tired, I sleep. I'm aroused, so I have sex. Like, that's the way it works. And if there's nobody around to have sex with, then I masturbate. But I do something because I, I need to express that sexuality. It's just a desire. It's no big deal. Like, of course you do that. That's the way, uh, that's the way you live. And so um, if that's my process, the equation that I'm seeing is desire plus consent equals freedom. So within, and I'm talking about primarily within the church, people who would say, well, you have to follow your desire. There are, there are big segments of the church that would just say, this is the way it is. Like, this is just, this is the way it works. And they would say, desire plus consent. So nobody's getting hurt. This is, um, we're all just, we're all consenting adults here. We're all deciding this is the right way we want to live. If we have consent and we follow our desire, we ultimately get freedom. So the real question is, do we? Because if we do actually get freedom, then that's not a bad equation. Um, so hookup culture 
if, you, if you're not familiar with that term, this idea of having a sexual relationship with people that you may know well or not much or not at all, but you have no real romantic connection to or deep commitment to. Hookup culture does not bring intimacy. I don't know this because I've practiced. I know this because I've read a lot. But there's um, all kinds of studies out there of people who are engaging in hookup culture who are saying, uh, it's just, it's not bringing anything to me. Because the reality is, having sex with strangers is really hard. Like, as, as much as we think, like, like, well, that sounds like that's no big deal. Like, sex just happens. No, the reality is, trying to, uh, trying to have sex with somebody you don't even really know is like your, your heart and your life don't get there. And so what ends up happening is this, uh, this desired dissociation that I separate myself from myself in order to be able to engage as a body without engaging as a mind and a spirit. It's like God's made us to be a body, mind, and spirit. We need to be united. Um, it, it's fascinating that even though sex promises freedom, in the midst of this whole culture, uh, there's this new crazy thing. Britain, just uh, a, about four or five years ago now, appointed a loneliness minister. So there's a loneliness minister in the government that's responsible to try to help people deal with their loneliness. This is what, this is what hookup culture brings. You get separated more and more and more because you're giving yourself away to more and more people and what you're finding is you have nothing of yourself left. There's nothing to truly, truly share. Uh, Bill Johnson uh, has this quote, listen to what he says, when you get rid of the creator, you remove the concept of the design. When you get rid of the design, you get rid of purpose. When you get rid of purpose, you get rid of accountability. When you get rid of the need to answer for your choices, you get rid of the fear of any sort of consequences. When you remove the fear of consequences, God is out of the equation. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So with no God and no wisdom, we are left with total sexual confusion. The real equation goes like this. Desire plus consent equals disillusionment. Talk to anybody who has been in this culture for any period of time, and they will tell you sex is no big deal. It's really, it's really not all it's cracked up to be. Talk to somebody who has been married in an intimate and uh, connected and joy-filled marriage for 20 or 30 or 40 years, and they will tell you sex is a really big deal. But people who are giving it away freely to everybody all the time will say, eh, don't worry about it, it's really nothing. They get disillusioned. Because actually, desire plus consent, if that's all you have, just gives your life away. So the question is, does Jesus have a vision beyond fear your desire or follow your desire? And I would say, absolutely, Jesus has a vision. And I'm going to term that healthy sexual formation or God's good plan for us. Healthy sexual formation, God's good plan for our lives. And, and I want to use the language of formation because it, it's really important for us to get this is not primarily about what I'm doing or why I'm doing, um, but who am I becoming? We tend to think of the what question first. Am I allowed to? Um, can I? Or the why underneath it, underneath it um, is this, is this um, something that I'm allowed to do or not allowed to do? Is this someone that I want to be with or not be with? Um, what, what's, what's the ethic of looking at pornography or what's the ethic of engaging in a, a flirtatious relationship with this person who's not my spouse? Whatever, whatever it is. We tend to look at the what or the why. But the real question that Jesus is always asking us is what are we becoming? What, what, are, 
What are we being formed into? And our sexuality, maybe as much as, if not more than, any other single factor forms us. We become something. So I'm going to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's on the screen, which is good because I can't flip there that quick. My Bible doesn't open to 1 Thessalonians really easily. I'm not sure what's going on with that. So 1 Thessalonians 4, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. What Paul says is, your sexuality is actually tied to your sanctification. The, the will of God is your sanctification, that you would be more like Jesus. You would be formed into an image that would be more like him. And so because of that, you should abstain from sexual immorality because it's in that process of being self-controlled and being spirit-controlled that we become formed into the image of Jesus. That's the formational process. Which sounds really nice. Like, I, I, you can memorize for Thessalonians 4, 3 to 8. It's really good stuff. Um, you can memorize it and probably still live exactly the same way tomorrow, right? That's the problem. Um, it, it's, it sounds like a great ethic. It is a great ethic. But how do you, how do you live it out? And so what I want to do is unpack four pillars that are core to human sexuality so that we can start to understand how we step into it. So the first pillar is this. Human sexuality is designed to point us to the true story of God. Human sexuality is designed to point us to the true story of God. If we get this, all of a sudden, there's a whole bunch of stuff within the way that we engage sexuality that immediately becomes off limits, not because it's bad or immoral, even though it probably is bad and immoral, but because it very clearly does not point to the story of God. So go back to Genesis chapter 2, when Adam and Eve are created, you maybe remember at the very end of Genesis 2, there's this, this beautiful phrase, they were naked and unashamed. So they were completely open to one another. This is not primarily about sexuality, actually. It's, it's about um, being uh, completely known, fully known, with no shame. So the goal of the creation of God is that we would be naked and unashamed. The, the literal term sex, it comes from a Latin word, and it literally means, get this, it means to sever or to cut off. To sever or to cut off. Now, that's weird. Now, what, what in the world is that all about? Um, the, the concept of sex is that there is a severed portion of us that's longing for union. And if you go all the way back, uh, you, you can see this throughout history, the way people have talked about sex. I'm just going to hit the 20th century because we don't have that much time. Um, Freud, if you study Freud, Freud said your sexuality is a longing for union with your parents. It's actually the connection that you once had with your mom in her womb, and you want to have that reunited again. Some of you are like, ew, well, yeah, that, I wouldn't have sit with Freud either. That's weird, but that's what he said. Um, 
Young on the other side, uh, that's J-U-N-G, not Y-O-U-N-G. Uh, Young said that uh, there was a longing for the opposite sex, that, um, that there was actually, it's, it's somewhat biblical, this idea that we are not full in who we are. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that uh, again when we get to the Q&A part. Um, but that, that we are longing for a union with the opposite sex. The Bible says that we are, actually, we are longing for union, we're just longing for union with our creator. We're actually longing for the oneness that we had with God in Genesis 1 and 2. Our entire way that sexuality is wired into us is actually a longing for Eden. There's something in us that is crying out to be, um, to, to be back with God. Um, in, in, a, uh, in an ironic twist, I quoted this guy for you last week, I'm gonna quote him for you again this week, Ronald Rollheiser is a celibate monk in his 60s. Um, he, he has some of the best writings out there on sexuality. In his book, The Holy Longing, which is where this quote comes from, he's taught, he defines sexuality, and it's such a, such a beautiful definition of sexuality. Listen to what he says. Sexuality is a beautiful, good, extremely powerful, sacred energy given us by God and experienced in every cell of our being as an irrepressible urge to overcome our incompleteness, to move toward unity and consummation with that which is beyond us. It is also the pulse to celebrate, to give and to receive delight, to find our way back to the Garden of Eden where we can be naked, shameless, and without worry. Sexuality is not simply about finding a lover or even finding a friend. It is about overcoming separateness by giving life and blessing it. Thus, in its maturity, sexuality is about giving oneself over to community, friendship, family, service, creativity, humor, delight, and martyrdom so that with God we can help bring life into the world. So, so what Rollheiser is saying is that your sexuality actually is not dependent upon physical body-to-body -body interaction with the opposite sex. Your sexuality is actually a longing for God that is um, most quickly and uh, literally expressed through that union with someone with the opposite sex, of the opposite sex, but not solely. Like there, there's, there's a longing within us that can be expressed so, so a, a celibate man or woman can as fully as a married couple express full, healthy biblical sexuality because what's happening is a longing to be united with God in a way that it's creative and generating life in the world around us. So, so think of it this way. With our understanding of sex, Jesus who came to live on earth with an actual male body, spent 33 years on earth. Jesus ended his life naked and unashamed on a cross. And in that act of sacrifice, in that act of self-giving, we were united back with the Father, invited back into a, a connection with God that we originally had in a way that is not at all intended to be sacrilegious, the cross may be the greatest sexual act in history. Because when you understand sexuality and God's intent, what he's doing is uniting us with the Father through the deepest act of intimacy and sacrifice that can be made. 
So our sexuality can't be just limited to a husband and wife relationship alone. A husband and wife relationship is an image of what God has actually created us to be much more broadly than that. So number one, human sexuality is designed to point us to the true story of God. Number two, human sexuality is a holistic integration. Here's what I mean by that. Um, Your sexual connection is not about your body and the way your body moves and operates. Our culture has separated our sexuality from our emotions and our spirits so that it's all, become, it's all about performance. And I know this because when I go grocery shopping, I can read the headlines on the front of Cosmopolitan or whatever in the world is out there. And it's all about performance, right? It's all about technique. It's all about uh, 10 ways to make your mad man crazy or what, I don't even know what they are. Those things, you know what they are. Uh, so th- there's, this, um, there's this idea that sex is all about genitalia when actually sex is only tangentially about genitalia. Genitalia is a small portion that is obsessive within our culture, but uh, if you look back throughout history, um, not, not obsessive. Like, have you ever noticed the fact, this is fascinating to me, that all the New Testament letters are arguing about whether guys were circumcised or not? Like, how many guys in this room are circumcised? You don't have to raise your hand, but just don't you know? No, of course you don't know, because we cover that up, right? Like, you wouldn't know. But back then, like, Paul's like, Timothy, you better get circumcised because we're going to go in to hang out with these, these Jewish people. Like, what are you doing, <laughs> right? But see, for us, like, like, like genitalia is like the, the big thing. Like, oh my goodness, if you saw a man's penis, like, that's, whoa. They're like, shut up, like, whatever. Like, it's the, so, so understand throughout history, the idea of this focus on genitalia is it's very new and it's very Western and um, it's honestly historically very odd. It's just, it's just weird. Um, but we see sexuality as so clearly tied to body and genitalia that we have a tough time seeing sexuality as broadly as it's intended to be. A New York Times article, so this is uh, not written by conservative Christian culture, New York Times article uh, on hookup culture says this, you just keep getting it purely sexual and that way people don't have mixed expectations and no one gets hurt. There's a, a girl who was being interviewed about hookup culture. She said, just, just keep it sexual. Just, just keep focusing on the sex part of it and don't allow your body and your emotions to get into it and that way nobody gets hurt. It'll just be fine. We just, our bodies do this thing and then it's over. But the problem is, it doesn't ever work that way. Uh, Nancy Piercy in her book, Love Thy, Bo- Love Thy Body, excellent book, um, tough to read, but really excellent book. She says this, No matter what the current secular philosophy tells them, people cannot dissociate their emotions from what they do with their bodies. In the biblical worldview, sexuality is integrated into the total person. The most complete and intimate physical union is meant to express the most complete and intimate personal union. And I would take a step beyond even what Dr. Piercy is saying and and say, whether you try to dissociate or not, that's what happens. Like, you, you are connected personally, even if you're seeking to just be connected physically, that's why hookup culture doesn't work. That, that's, that's why you can't just follow your desires, because there's something greater, there's another story that's, that's being told. I said it's tough to read, not tough to read because it's complex, it is a little complex, it's tough to read because it's, when, when you expose biblical sexuality in the midst of our culture in a really clear way, it's tough to even get your head around it because it's so different than the way that we think about the world and, and Dr. Piercy does that really, really well. Um, 
Christianity teaches a whole life union. So the idea of a covenant marriage is that we would be wholly connected to every part of each other. And so sexuality is supposed to be demonstrating what it looks like, our sex relationship, when lives are fully connected, not just when bodies are connected. So the body connection should be demonstrating the life connection. That's the holistic idea. That's pillar two. Pillar three, human sexuality is tied to our transformation. So when, when you don't simply fulfill your desires, you have to start to examine your desires. Let me say that again. If you don't just fulfill your desires, you have to start to examine your desires. So if I'm just not saying, ooh, I feel this thing, I better meet that need, I'm hungry, I better eat, I'm aroused, I better have some kind of sexual release, I have to start to think about in my life, why is it that I feel what I feel? What is it that's generating this in me? Is it healthy, isn't it healthy? It's actually the same reason why fasting is so formational for us. Because when we fast from food, we start to think about the ways that we use food. When we go into silence, we start to think about the ways that we use conversation and words. When we cease to meet every sexual desire at the moment that we have that sexual desire, we start to think, why is it that I feel like that? Why is it that I think like that? Galatians 5, uh, you, you don't need to turn there, but um, uh, one, one of my very favorite passages toward the end of Galatians 5 talks about the, you, you probably know it as the fruit of the spirit passage, and it also talks about the, um, the, the acts of the flesh or the, the, the fruit of the flesh. This is, this is what happens when. And both of those passages, describing the fleshly activities and describing the spirit activities, are passive in Paul's terms. Paul says, Walk in the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. If you're gratifying the desires of the flesh, here's what it's going to look like. If you walk in the Spirit, here's what it's going to look like. So he doesn't say, be loving, be joy-filled, be self-controlled. That's one of the reasons why breaking the fruit of the Spirit into nice little pieces and identifying them all has, at the very least, a limitation. And that limitation is we try to do that, which is not what Paul said. He said, walk in the Spirit. And if you walk in the Spirit, as, as you're in step with the Spirit, you're going to see these things come out of your life. If I'm always fulfilling all of my desires, I'm stopping my ability to see what it is that's coming out of my life. When the flesh comes out, I should see that. When the Spirit comes out, I should see that. That's why Paul gave us this passage to be able to understand, are we walking in the Spirit or are we walking in the flesh? Human sexuality is key to our transformation. Those desires are strong. Those desires are real. And when they come up, they tell us something about ourselves. Pillar number four, we've got to keep moving or I'm going to be like 75%. Uh, human sexuality impacts our testimony to the world. Um, so the way that we handle sex uh, has always been historically a key way that the church has a testimony to the world. Now, if you read the headlines right now, we're not doing real well as it comes to that, right? Like, there's a lot of negative sex headlines as it relates to the church. But if you go back historically, like reading um, secular historians talking about the early church, they will say that the early church was uh, profoundly powerful in its witness because of their testimony through their sexuality. So, uh, how did the early church impact the Roman Empire? Well, they 
they died forgiving their enemies. That was one thing. As they killed them, they forgave the people who were killing them. Like, that's, that's pretty crazy. Um, they were, uh, the way it was described as financially promiscuous. <laughs> they were very promiscuous with their money. They just gave it away freely to anybody. Anybody who needed it, they just gave their money away. But they were not sexually promiscuous. The way it was described by one secular historian was they have a common table, but they don't have a common bed. That was the testimony of the early church. And as we live a sexual ethic, it should look different than the world, and that difference should be a testimony to the world around us. And so when we have a holistic vision of sexuality resting on pillars like those, um, we, we begin to express what is healthy sexual formation to the world around us. But even if we have all of those, temptation's still going to come, right? You can be saying to yourself over and over again, my sexuality is telling the story of God. My sexuality is intended to be holistic. I need to have a witness to the world around me. And then all of a sudden, like whatever hits you, right? So, so what do you do? I want to I deal with two of the big temptations. There's lots of them out there. But I think uh, the two twin temptations of pornography and masturbation are probably the two biggest single issues that are not just hitting, um, that they tend to be, the way that we think about them is they're kind of the, um, the haven of teenage boys. But the reality is they're the haven of teenage boys and girls and men and women in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s and 60s and keep going. It's, it's us, this, this is us. And it's more and more us when we literally hold the entire internet in our pocket. That makes it much, much, much more complicated. So, um, we need to understand a couple things about pornography. Um, pornography in the way that it is marketed tends to target younger people. The reason is because if you can get somebody hooked when they're 12, they're still gonna be hooked when they're 50. That's the way the process works. Um, the, the addiction to pornography is very similar from a uh, brain study perspective to the addiction to heroin. You don't break it easily. It is not like one of those things that you're like, ah, I'm just going to stop doing that now. Uh, yeah, good luck. That, it doesn't really work that way. Uh, what starts to happen is that you have a reward center in your brain that starts to light up. There's dopamine that is uh, showing up in your system, uh, and you get this rush when you look at pornography, and so because of that rush, again, the same thing that happens when you, uh, when you take heroin, or eat sugar, interestingly, that's a, that you can figure that out on your own. Um, so that en entire process just literally starts to rewire our brain. But, but here's the crazy thing. When, when someone uses pornography on a regular basis over an extended period of time, they literally start to lose their normal sexual desire. Because actual sex is act actually hard work. You have to, like, actually connect with someone. Like, sex on demand is a way easier process to follow through on. And so pe people actually stop having normal sexual relationships. The uh, statistics are just, like, crazy in the younger generations of how much less sex people are having and how there are lots and lots of particularly young men who've just said, yeah, I'm not, not really interested in normal sex like that. I just, uh, pornography is good with me. Like that's, that's totally fine. And because it's dopamine, you need more and more. You need uh, m more, and, uh, more and more intense. And so typically that takes the form of violence. That takes the form of uh, a, a variety of stranger, more perverse sexual acts in order to create the same dopamine rush. 
So it's the same thing, again, that happens if you're shooting heroin. You need a little bit, then you need a little bit more, then you need a little bit more. You, you need to continue to, to feed that. Our relationships are falling apart due to porn distortion. Uh, the latest statistics I've seen is that far more than half, it depends on your statistics and it depends on how you're surveying, but far more than half of current divorces cite pornography or some kind of excessive sexual internet usage as one of the primary reasons leading to divorce. More than 50% of divorces by far. I mean, depending on the statistics, you can find up to 80 or 85% of divorces cite among the reasons for divorce, internet porn usage. Like, it's crazy. So, so the reason I lay all that out is to say when, when this whole thing uh, becomes a temptation, uh, there, there's a he healthy sexual ethic on one side, but there's this other thing that we need to begin to, to allow to flow through our mind to say, um, this is being created in order to hook me in like a drug. This is no different than the drug dealer on the corner. And I, I'm falling for the same techniques that the drug dealer is using. And so to limit ourselves from pornography is not this, this problem. And I'm not even getting into the fact that most of the women that are featured in pornography, lots of them are being trafficked. There's lots and lots of uh, of sex slavery that's happening and being recorded, uh, all kinds of things like revenge porn that's being shown without people's uh, permission. There's all kinds of problems within it. I'm not even getting into all that. I'm just saying, in you, let's ask the question, what's forming me? What, what's, what's this thing that's... See, if we come at this from a morality perspective, then we start saying, well, is that good or that bad? Where's the line? What's going on? Think about formation. From a formation perspective, Porn is forming you in a way that is anti-God, anti-kingdom. He's, por pornography forms us towards us. And that leads to masturbation, because masturbation is certainly often connected with porn, but even when it's not connected with porn, it's, uh, it's a really tricky thing because uh, masturbation is not in the Bible, and that's not because they didn't know it. Um, that's one of my very favorite things, to have conversations with like, teenage boys as I'm walking them through this stuff, and I'm like, yeah, it wasn't like they like, discovered that in 1955. It's not like, oh, look at that. I didn't know that could happen, right? It's like, that's not, not like that. It's been around for a really long time, which is, uh, which is by the way, really interesting because it's not spoken to in the Scriptures. Uh, there are people who say, well, uh, Onan spilled his seed. Well, he did, and it's pretty graphic, and you can go back and read it, and it was not masturbation. There was another thing going on there, and uh, so um, it's, it's, just, it's just not in there. Um, but if, if it's not in the Bible, I've always felt that you search C.S. Lewis next, because C.S. Lewis is close. You know, it's, it's almost, okay, just kidding, that's almost heresy, but... Um, <laughs> C.S. Lewis does have a fabulous thing that he wrote uh, in uh, Letters to Malcolm. Um, before I say that, let me uh, go back one. Um, before I say that, I should say that um, uh, Augustine talked about, our, uh, uh, about the idea of not just masturbation, but all kinds of those, those sins, the sexual sin, as sin turned in on self. And I think that's, that's the image that, um, that Lewis is kind of building on. So, okay, go ahead, go to that uh, uh, that slide. 
For me, the real evil, this is a really, really long one, but stick with it. You have it on the page if that's easier for you. For me, the real evil of masturbation would be that it, it, it takes an appetite which in lawful use leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct his own personality in that of another, to, to complete his own personality in that of another, and finally in children and even grandchildren and turns it back, sends the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifices or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no real woman can rival. Among those shadowy brides, he is always adored, always the perfect lover. No demand is made on his unselfishness, no mortification ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. And it is not only the faculty of love which is thus sterilized, forced back on itself, but also the faculty of imagination. The true exercise of imagination, in my view, is to A, help us to understand other people, and B, to respond to, and some of us, to produce art. But it has also a bad use, to provide for us in shadowy form a substitute for virtues, successes, distinctions, etc., which ought to be sought outside in the real world. For example, picturing all I'd do if I were rich instead of earning and saving. Masturbation involves this abuse of imagination in erotic matters, which I think is bad in itself, and thereby encourages a similar abuse in all of its spheres. After all, almost the main work of life is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prison we are all born in. Masturbation is to be avoided as all things are to be avoided which retard this process. The danger is that of coming to love the prison. So although this is Lewis, not Scripture, He is building on all kinds of scriptural principles that basically say, if I am focused on myself, which is obviously at the heart of masturbation, I am unable to unform that in the rest of my life. I will continue to be formed. Remember, the big question is, what am I being formed into? And that question of formation continues to push us out of self, not back into self. Which is why I would argue the Bible doesn't talk specifically about masturbation because um, what, what God's trying to get us to see is that it's so much different, I don't want to say more, eh, probably more than uh, just what's right and wrong. Because it, it's not just like, am I allowed? It's who am I becoming when I do? It's uh, when I engage my mind and my imagination and my life that way, how, who am I becoming? And, and what's happening to me? That's the question that Lewis is asking. And honestly, that's the question throughout the scriptures that we're constantly drawn back to. Who, who are we becoming? That's why First Thessalonians 4, Paul says, the will of God is your sanctification, so therefore flee from sexual immorality. When, when, you, when you distort this core aspect of who you are, you cannot be formed into who you were meant to be. That's the way that God has designed it. And so this harem that Lewis's idea within stops me from healthy sexuality in real life and leads me to love the prison. That's the issue of masturbation. At some point in time, you get to a place where you say, I would just rather do this anyway because it's easier and I don't ever have to worry about trying to care for somebody else. I can just care for me. This is far more about 
uh, formation than it is about morality. So the question, the big question is, who am I becoming by what I'm doing? Lewis, again, I, I want to lay out for you. you. You may know, you've probably heard me talk about it at different times. There are four different words for love in the Greek language. Uh, so when the Bible talks about love, it uses four different terms. Um, th those terms, I, I'm going to lay it out first in the way uh, the world layers those terms. And so you can go to that next slide, Dan. Um, dating culture starts with eros. So eros is the kind of love, uh, obviously root word that goes back to erotic. It's a sexualized love that is uh, manifested in the physical. Dating culture starts there. So I'm physically attracted to you. I want to hook up with you. I move that direction. Um, maybe after that, you might make a step to the, the idea of storge love. Storge love is a, a committed love that, um, that, that's sentimental and, and deeply connected to you, where you start to feel like, oh, like I really want to be with that person. I really care for that person. Uh, even something like nostalgia is part of storge love. When you, when you just think back and you, you have this kind of warm feeling uh, within storge love. So storge love is more of a committed kind of love. Phylos then is friendship love. It's like a, a genuine affection for someone based on who they are and a connection that you have between yourselves. And agape love, the love that we tend to talk about biblically, is a self-giving love that has nothing to do with the person itself and their worth to receive that love, but has everything to do with the love that's been given to me that flows from me to that person. Dating culture puts them in that order. We start with eros, and then maybe in a good sexual relationship, it moves to storge. Maybe I start to feel like a commitment. And then after that commitment happens, I may even decide I like you. Maybe. We'll see. And then after I decide that maybe we could be friends, at some point in time, I might get to a place where I'd be willing to sacrifice myself for you. But that's way, that's way down the line. But biblically, it's fascinating. Those things are completely inverted. Jesus calls us to sacrifice for people first. When we first know them, as we first connect with them, our first instinct should be to give of ourselves to people, to sacrifice ourselves for them. And then to build real friendships, relationships, connections with one another, to get to know people for who they are. And then to build into a level of commitment to one another, whether that be certainly um, marriage commitment, but even things like a commitment to one another in community, a, a covenant connection where um, we serve one another and commit to one another. And then finally, in uh, rare instances in a marriage relationship, uh, you move into eros love, where that moves from a storge commitment into a, 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 an erotic commitment. I, I love um, that there's a, there's a book called Real Sex by Lauren Winner that I lent to somebody, and if you're that person, I need that book back. I, don't, I dug all over for it this week, and I have no idea where it went. Man, it drives me nuts. Anyway, I'm, so I'm remembering this from a long time ago. I think I'm roughly right. Uh, Lauren Winner talks about the idea of um, our, our the, she's talking about the idea of pre, a premarital sexual relationship, and she says that marriage comes out of the community. It's a really beautiful image because basically what she says is um, in your dating relationship, everything that you do in your dating relationship should be able to be seen by other people because you're part of the community. And then as that relationship grows and develops, 
those things start to get slightly more private where maybe only certain people would be able to see you um, hold hands or cuddle in the way that you would. Maybe that's only family members or people who are a little bit closer to you, uh, part of that covenant community. But then in this magical moment, the community gathers around at the day of a wedding and says, we as the community uh, confer upon you the freedom to have a personal, private relationship that's separate from all of us. We've watched this develop within you, and now we, we confer that into you. I, and whether or not you follow every single step of that, I just think that's a beautiful picture of the way that God has designed those physical relationships to happen, that they happen within the context of a healthy community and they uh, live themselves out in an agape leading to phylos, leading to storge, and ultimately that eros love is conferred by the community into a couple who says, now I can uh, have that kind of relationship. Uh, Tim Keller, uh, in his book, Meaning of Marriage, if you read one book on marriage and you can make it through Keller, Meaning of Marriage is the best thing out there. Really, really, really good stuff, uh, uh, comprehensively, all kinds of different stuff. Listen to what he says. When the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by how much you want to receive, but by how much you are willing to give of yourself to someone. How much are you willing to lose for the sake of this person? How much of your freedom are you willing to forsake? How much of your precious time, emotion, and resources are you willing to invest in this person? And for that, the marriage vow is not just helpful, but it is even a test. In so many cases, when one person says to another, I love you, love you, but let's not ruin it by getting married, that person really means I don't love you enough to close off all my options. I don't love you enough to give, you, give myself to you that thoroughly. To say, I don't need a piece of paper to love you is basically to say my love for you has not reached the marriage level. What Keller's saying is, when we invert it, we don't actually commit to one another. There's not a, a real level of commitment. And, and that's why, at the core, sex is intended to be in covenant. God intended sex to be in covenant so that there is a real, lasting commitment that guards your sexuality. The beauty of sex between one man and one woman for life, and, uh, and I know uh, we're going to get into homosexuality next week. We'll talk a little bit about that as, uh, as we dive into that next week. But the, the beauty of one man and one woman for life means there are no other comparisons. There's no other like, well, I, I need to act a certain way. I need to perform a certain way because this person's going to talk about it to somebody else or it's going to be compared to something else. There, there's a, the beauty of a husband and a wife saying, we are going to explore and live with one another forever because we're deeply committed to one another and our commitment is not based on our sexual fulfillment. Our sexual fulfillment is based on our commitment. And that, that inversion is so vitally important to the biblical sexual ethic. So, Christian sexual formation, let me just hit a couple things, almost done before we go to questions. So start thinking of questions if you haven't started to send them. Um, Christian sexual formation requires a proper vision of the purpose of sex. Um, sex has what's uh, in Greek called a telos, a, 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 an end, a completion, like a specific purpose. And unless we understand that purpose, we will always distort the act because we don't understand what it's supposed to be in the end. So um, the, the way that I uh, like to think about it, um, oh, well, that's going to be in one of the questions, so we'll, uh, we'll come back to that. Never mind. Keep, hold that thought. Number two, um, the power of the Spirit to live this out. We can't live out our sexuality in our flesh. 
We are not going to be capable of doing it. You're not going to be able to have healthy sexuality without the power of the Spirit. It's just the way it works. You say, well, I know lots of, uh, lots of people who are not followers of Jesus who have a healthy sexual ethic, and that very well may be true that they have a healthy sexual ethic, but they cannot have a biblical sexual ethic without the power of the Spirit because the idea of giving of self is something that God has to generate in us and what only happens when God has given us himself. And so um, th- there, there may be an outwardly healthy sexual ethic, but a true inward biblical sexual ethic has to come from the power of the Spirit. And finally, practices shape us into who we're meant to be. So th- we've talked about this for years at York Alliance. We need practice to form us. We do not form ourselves by more information. I've, I've given you a bunch of information. If all you ever do is hear that information and you never moves to practice, you're not going to be formed. Which is the way it works. Uh, the, the, the sexual ethic requires formation. That requires discipline. And for some of you, that's going to mean like, I, I need to take a porn fast as I try to understand what in the world's happening in my brain. Uh, for some of you, that's going to mean saying, um, I, I need to r- remove myself from um, this influence and this influence and this influence and this crazy over-sexualized culture and start to detox and try to understand what is even coming into my mind. Um, it, it, some, some of you who are married need to sit down and have like real conversations. That's like the most terrifying thing to husbands and wives, like real conversations about sex. Like, yeah, it could be really, that could be really good. It could be really intimate too. It can be, it can be quite nice. So it's good to have those conversations. But some of you need to like discipline yourself into those conversations to, to practice some of those things. And on and on and on. We can talk about that endlessly, but we need to have those, those kind of formational things. Biblical sexuality particularly if you are single, um, particularly if you are young and either in the middle of or at the tail end of puberty, biblical, biblical sexuality will literally feel like suffering in our culture. Like you, you just need to know that up front. Like you live in a world that is so incredibly backwards that when you have all of these desires that are generated within you, and you're not feeling like you have an expression for them, and everybody says that you can just express them however you want, it will feel like literal suffering. And if you don't know that going into it, you will not make it. Because you're going to hear everybody say it's no big deal. What? Who cares if you look at porn? Everybody looks at porn. Like literally, there are classes, not in York that I'm aware of, but there are classes in uh, particularly in urban centers on the coasts, that teach high school students how to be ethical users of porn. Like they basically just say, like, um, we know you're going to be using a lot of pornography. Here's here, like literally high school classes. Here's an example of unethical porn. Here's an example of ethical porn. This is the way that you should be consuming pornography. Like when that's the culture around you, it's going to feel like suffering to say I'm going to choose a, an ethic of chastity of pursuing agape before I pursue eros. Like, that's, that's crazy in the culture around you. And so you, you have to understand that up front. And that's not just for younger people who are wrestling through. That's for all of us. But it's especially true for those who are in that, that formational process. Um, the other thing I would say is it is vitally important, I would say, um, impossible to do otherwise, that um, this is formed within us in community. If you don't have people to talk to about this, again, you will not make it. You, 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 and it doesn't need to be everybody. <laughs> like, please, don't have it be everybody. That could get really awkward. 
but it, there, there needs to be people, there need to be people that you, that you talk to. Um, I was, we talked about this in the spring, so I'm just going to hit it really quick. There's a, a quote from a guy named Jonathan Grant who wrote a book called Divine Sex, which is, again, excellent, excellent book on sexuality. It, he talks about joy centers in our brain. And uh, listen to the way he says it, and then we'll, then we'll talk about it real quickly. Neurologists have shown that while most brain development stops sometime in childhood, the brain's joy center, located and observable in the right orbital prefrontal cortex, is the only part of the brain that never loses its capacity to grow. As Dr. James Friesen and his colleagues explain, when the joy center has been sufficiently developed, it excuse me, regulates emotions, pain control, immunity centers, it guides us to act like ourselves, it releases neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin, and it is the only part of the brain, get this, that overrides the main drive centers, food, sexual impulses, joy, and rage. Without sufficient joy strength, we spend the rest of our lives trying to fill the deficit. Now that's fascinating, I'm, I don't understand n- neurology, but the, the idea of what he's saying is fascinating. What he's saying is the, the joy center in your brain is continuing to develop, and if it's not being fed in healthy ways, you will not have the ability to override those deep desires within you. So if you, for, let, let's take it away from sex for a second. If you, if you really struggle to fast, he would say your inability to fast or control your eating is due to a lack of joy. Your inability to make a decision to get off the couch to go for a run is actually due to your lack of joy. How crazy is that? Like he basically is saying there is only one thing in your brain that's strong enough to override those desires for comfort, and that thing is joy, which is why we need one another, because community is part of the way that that process unfolds, that we, uh, we adapt to those joy centers. So last thing, um, I say all of that, and I'm well aware that every single person in this room, including the one speaking, is hearing that and saying, yeah, but I have really messed that up. Like, really. Like, it's bad. Now what do I do? And so I want to I show you an image, uh, and, and this, this is an image taken from an, ap- uh, uh, an ancient Japanese art form. Uh, the, the, I think it's pronounced kintsugi, I think. Um, but w- what happens in Japan is when pottery's broken, it's not just, it, is that the right way to pronounce it? You guys are smiling, so probably not. Is that the right way? Yeah, did I get it right? The art people are like, yeah, 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 we got it. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, so when we break things, we throw them away. Um, but using this art form, they don't throw them away. They uh, re-piece them together with gold interlay and these beautiful works of art become incredibly more valuable when they're put back together. That's the image I want to leave you with because I, I deeply believe that the call of God for us as we are formed sexually in our day is to be people who are taking those pieces because we're all coming broken, putting them back together, and actually becoming more valuable in the process of them being put back together to, to, to be more beautiful. And I think for many of us, we just think, well, it's too late. Like, I'm already broken. I'm already messed up. Well, it's actually in the brokenness that we can find that deep beauty. And so I want to assure you, as I assure myself, that in the midst of our brokenness, as we piece things back together, we can actually find the beauty that God's created uh, for us.
All right, so we're going to transition to questions. That was a lot. That was way longer than I anticipated. I'll just go shorter next week, and I'll have to because Matt's got to talk next week too, so we're really going to try to make this work better. Um, before I wrap up, Matt, is there anything you want to throw into that? Since Matt's the only one who gets to talk, I should give him an opportunity to. But No, you're good right now? All right, cool. As we get to questions, you may have a couple things, so feel free to, to jump in. And um, what, what I may do, Dan, Dan, do you have the ability to have him have a handheld microphone? Oh, look at that. We'll just, you don't even have to move up here, but just if you want to say something that way, it'll be on the podcast if, uh, if desired. So I, I got two questions last week, and then I'll transition to at least one that I got now, and then I'll look for some other ones along the way. The first question was a really simple one, but I thought a really, really helpful one. The question was, is this, this class, I think is what is anticipated, is this LGBTQ positive or no? And so the, the question was simply like, what should I expect of this class? And, and I think it's a great question because I think we tend to bifurcate this, um, this whole idea as it relates to um, alternative sexuality, uh, uh, non-heteronormative sexuality is maybe the way to say that. Um, as though there are, there's like, pro and con. So the question was great because you didn't ask the question, is it LGBTQ affirming? Do I say that that's a good idea? Is it LGBTQ positive? And I would say, absolutely. We are seeking to, all of us, express love towards all people. And um, even as I say that, there are people who are saying, yeah, 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 but I know what that means. That means that you don't like what I do. Here's what I would say. Um, all of us are in the middle of doing things that are opposite to the will of God, and we are all working our way through all of that. And so I would say for LGBTQ plus people who would say, like, I'm here and wanting to engage and wanting to listen, I would say the, the heart of God for you right where you are is exactly the way the heart of God for me right where I am is, which is a desire to see wholeness and what's best. The, the question I always ask is, if I knew what would make my life thrive, wouldn't I step into that? And the answer is always, of course I would. Like, if I knew where I could have, like, the most joy, the most thriving, like, the best life, of course I would step into that. And, and so for me to ever express there's um, a way that you are limiting yourself, limiting the flow of the Spirit, the flow of joy, as we talked about that joy center, into your life. And for me to say, I, I don't want to offend you, therefore, I'm going to tell you that that's really, really good, and you ultimately end up going down a path that is not going to lead you toward thriving, that would not be loving of, of me to do that. And so um, what we will talk through, and we'll talk through it specifically next week, is the biblical teaching around LGBT. Uh, and a little bit of Q, we're going to skip the T until uh, February. We'll get back to that. Um, and, and we're, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it in a very real way. And I, and I want to say up front, the church has a terrible track record as it relates to um, particularly homosexuality. The church is, has a terrible track record with it. And that's particularly grieving to me because a lot of my friends come from that lifestyle. And so it's, uh, it's painful to me to see the way the church has interacted with um, particularly the homosexual community. That said, real love is no more, um, if, if I was to tell you to just eat sugar all the days of your life and just enjoy yourself until you die of diabetes at 35 or whatever, like that would not be loving of me. 
And in the same way, I would tell you, if I see you doing something that I know is outside of the path that God has laid out for you for his best, I would always try to help you get into the path that's for your best. And so there, there's a nuanced way that I'm trying to say that, and I'm not sure I'm even getting across right now, but um, I, I, I want to say, yes, very LGBTQ positive, um, not necessarily affirming of any lifestyle outside of a biblical sexual ethic, because the biblical sexual ethic is not narrow, it's actually formational, and as we've talked about. That's, that's really the heart. It's not about there's a, a tiny little path to walk. It's about there's something that God's doing in us, and that thing that God's doing in us is, is really worth doing. Um, the second question was a, a nice, easy one. What does it mean to live like eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven? Who should do this and how? <laughs> that's great. Um, so that's, uh, that's out of Matthew chapter 19. Whoever sent that, I love you. Man, you make me crazy. Um, so let me just read uh, Matthew 19. It's a great, it's a, man, this is a powerful passage. I don't have time to preach it, which I wish I did because, man, it's really fun. But let me just t- tell you where it comes from. So Jesus is talking about divorce in Matthew 19 uh, at the beginning. Um, let me read it in context. So this is starting in verse 3. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, marries another, commits, uh, marries another, commits adultery. Let me just pause and say, particularly if you're divorced or you've been through divorce, I preached on this passage about a year and a half ago through the summer, summer of 2020, somewhere in there, end of summer 2020 in the Matthew series. I would encourage you, if you've not heard it, go back and listen to it. That it, There's some things that that sounds like that is not what Jesus intended, and there's some things that it sounds like that was what Jesus intended, and I don't have time to unpack them right now. So if you're a person who has been through divorce, uh, you should go back and listen to that. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. What in the world is that all about? So eunuchs, um, hopefully I don't have to give you real clear definitions. Um, um, there are men who no longer have their genitalia because the, um, something has happened. So he says sometimes that happens from birth. That's very rare cases. We'll talk about that when we get to transgender a little bit. Um, some Sometimes that happens because of a king. So kings would make men eunuchs so that they wouldn't uh, mess around with the the harem and the princesses and the the queen and all those people. And then some people, Jesus says, uh, make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. That's really the heart of the question. Um, So so the question is, uh, who should do this and how? So the first thing I want you to see is, this is the first time literally in Jewish history, in Israel's history, where a respected rabbi did not say, go get married. That's profound. Like, Jesus did not teach that wholeness is found in marriage. He taught that wholeness is found in humanity. This is 
incredibly progressive. Like when he said this, um, they, they were in this argument between two different rabbinical schools at the time, and that's what they were trying to get him to engage. Both of those schools would have disagreed with him. Literally every Jewish teacher alive at the time would have disagreed with him. And this is a profound statement because what he's saying is um, that there's a theology of singleness that says that your singleness not only can reflect the glory of God, but maybe the best optimal path to the glory of God. Like nobody had ever said that in Judaism before. Um, so here's what he's saying. Marriage creates a path to the glory of God. So we read it when he was talking about divorce, uh, quoting from Genesis that a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, they'll become one flesh. So marriage can reflect the kingdom of God. But if we go back to this idea of purpose, of, of telos, there are, if the end goal of man is to glorify God, Jesus is saying that doesn't just happen through marriage, but that can happen through your creation. And so if the goal of this microphone is to amplify sound, and it doesn't amplify sound, you'd get rid of it, because it's junk. It doesn't fulfill its purpose, right? Well, that was the way the common teaching of the day taught singleness. If, if you're not going to get married, you're not going to not going to become one flesh. You're not going to reflect the glory of God. You're not achieving your purpose. What Jesus said is not only is that not true, but actually in singleness there are times that you would more fully fulfill your purpose than you even would in marriage. This has gone back and forth over the course of centuries. So the Catholic Church has uh, often uh, elevated singleness to an unreasonable point of view. And then there are times that the Protestant church has gone the other way. Uh, we're in a, a swing like that right now. We're starting to center again. But the, particularly the early 2000s were a swing where it was, everything was all about marriage and there was no sense of the glory of singleness. What Paul's really clear about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is that there are people for whom staying single is the very best way that they can serve both God and the church. And that should be done not based on compulsion, but it should be done based on who they are. And so the answer to the question is, who should, be, who should live as eunuchs? What Jesus and Paul will both say is, anybody who can. If you're able to, you, you should do that. But if you can't, which most people can't, that's fine. Mar marriage is a way that you can glorify God. And singleness is a way that you can glorify God. Both of them equally glorify God. And so the idea of choosing to live single, uh, we'll talk about this quite a bit next week as we get into homosexuality, can be a, a gift that God gives, but rightly understood, singleness is always a gift to the church. There's always a gift to the community that comes from singleness. Um, that doesn't always mean that the church handles it well, but singles invited into families is one of the most beautiful expressions of the kingdom of God and honestly one of the most beautiful gifts ever for a family. There's a guy named Mike Pilvachi. I'm sure you're going to be able to like totally Google that one. I think it's P-I-L-V-A-C-H-I. I think. I think it's close to that. Um, he's the pastor of Soul Survivor Church in England and he's done some excellent teaching on singleness. And so if you are in that position, you want to dig more into it, um, listen to uh, some of his stuff, read some of his stuff. It's really, really excellent. Um, Paul would say everybody who can should is the, uh, the answer to that question. 
Um, all right, so uh, I'll just read through some of these. I'm just reading them quick to make sure I can just read them as is. I have a friend that's been masturbating, and I was wondering how I could help them to stop doing that. Well, that's a, that's a great question, and it totally depends on their perspective. So if they're coming as a follower of Jesus who is seeking to, uh, to, to actually stop themselves, they actually want to, um, I would actually take them this Lewis quote. I think this Lewis quote is a super helpful way. You might, I know it's a little dense, so you may have to kind of explain some and work your way through it, but I, I think it's a super helpful uh, image to try to help, uh, to help uh, create an understanding. The, the thing that I have constantly gone back to with guys, because that's who I tend to walk with as it relates to this issue, is that it's A, not best for any of us. This is, again, it's a formation thing. So um, masturbation is not going to form me to be more like Jesus. And B, it's not the unforgivable sin. If it was, Jesus would have said it. The Bible is not shy about talking about very explicit things. The fact that the Bible does not mention masturbation, I think, is a hint to us. This is not the worst thing ever. Our over-sexualized culture tends to make it either the best thing or the worst thing ever. It's somewhere in the middle. It's not going to form you to be like Jesus. So therefore, um, if you have somebody who's seeking to pursue Jesus, I would encourage them to pursue Jesus. And in that pursuit of Jesus, they will begin to move away from a, a, a self-focused way of living in general, and that's going to include their sexuality. Um, but I would also say, um, don't obsess, um, particularly depending on who this is. Um, if you're talking about a, um, a younger person who's going through puberty, you are going to, f you're, you're going to fail along the way. Like, it's going to happen. Like, it, you should really work not to. That's really good. But man, like, we, we can get ourselves so beat up in shame and guilt over something that Jesus does. If, if Jesus wanted you to feel that much guilt over it, he would have specifically talked about it. It's not like, like you know, he was walking around with 12 single guys. Well, a couple of them were married, but most of them were single. Like, it's not like they didn't have these conversations and they weren't recorded for you. So it's, it's not the end of the world. Hopefully that helps a little bit. Uh, the church, at least the Protestant church, has broadly accepted that sex can exist outside of procreation by condoning the use of contraceptive, contraceptives in marital sexuality. How is masturbation distinct from contraceptive sex apart from the fact that the latter involves a spouse and do we diminish the will of God for sexuality by condoning contraceptives? Great questions, man, heavy questions. Let me, um, let, let me take them d both because there's really two different questions there. So does, does masturbation distinct from contraceptive sex apart from the fact that the latter involves a spouse? Um, uh, how's it different? Um, and yes, the, uh, involving a spouse is a really big deal. Uh, that's a pretty significant thing. But um, the, the core of the fact that the sexual act should be otherward, not inward, is the core issue of sexuality. And so whether there's contraceptives being used or not, there's still an otherward dynamic to a, to a, a marital sexual encounter that is not able to be present in a, a self-sexual encounter. And so the, the distinction there is really the idea of, um, of uh, again, if we go back to formation, you're forming yourself to be generous and caring rather than to be selfish and self-focused. So that perspective. The, the question about the ethics of contraceptives is a really, really tricky one. 
Um, so, and I'm certainly not an expert, and so I want to say up front, I'm not an expert. Um, I will say a couple things with it. Um, one of those things is that almost everyone throughout history, not everyone, but almost everyone throughout history has used some form of, of contraception. They just have not typically been until the last 60 years um, uh, as easily accessible as they are now. So uh, the, the rhythm method of, of contraception has been around for centuries tested in uh, lots and lots of particularly Catholic households because uh, as this question talks to, that's uh, one of the distinctives of Catholic theology. And so the rhythm method of, uh, of contraception is an another way of circumventing the idea of, uh, of every sexual act uh, procreating. Of course, you're still um, leaving the possibility if you've done something wrong or you've measured incorrectly or whatever, whatever. Um, the, to, to go to the heart of the question, I would argue that um, the Catholic theology, I don't want to get too deep here, but Catholic theology takes the, um, both Catholic and Protestant theology see the sexual act as engaging in the life of the Trinity. So the Father, Son, and Spirit together connecting with one another are seen as sexual partners in not the like weird way in the way that we think, but in a, in a way that is self-giving, self-sacrificing, full of joy, full of ecstasy. Like literally there are theologians who would say the Trinity is experiencing an eternal orgasm within their Trinitarian way of engaging. So that, that way of idea is very time-tested um, theologically. So both Protestants and Catholics agree that our sexual relationship mirrors the Trinity in some way. The Catholic relationship, if I make it like a little triangle, let me see if I can make a triangle with my hand. Um, the, the Catholic way of mirroring the Trinity, this is the, I'm not a Catholic theologian, this is the way I understand it, is that the husband and wife and the potential of the child that could come from their union make up the mirror of the Trinity. So therefore, contraception interrupts the flow of the Trinity by literally taking one person out of the Trinity. Protestant theology would turn the triangle the other way and say husband and wife are engaging in the life of the Spirit through the presence of God with, within their sexual relationship. So one of the things I talk about in premarital all, all the time is that God is not embarrassed by your sexuality. He doesn't want you to turn off the lights and he like is really happy about your sexual life. Like um, I, tell, I tell couples, um, you, you should thank him for sex. I would do it afterwards because in the middle is really awkward sometimes. So uh, after is usually better. Um, but like God's, God's engaged in that process, right? And so that's where Protestants would, would have that triangle turned the other direction. Some of you are like, oh my goodness, I can't even like really even look at you anymore. So it's okay. It's okay. Um, so, so I would say from a theological perspective, I, at the premise of the theology, I would disagree that the idea of procreation is inherent into the, um, the experience of sexuality, but I'm a Protestant. So um, Catholics would see that differently. And we can, that's clearly an open-handed issue that we could disagree on if you've been through our membership class. Um, I need an outline, uh, okay, I just want to see what I was reading here. I, I, I need an outline, <laughs> I just, you just don't know all the time, okay? Um, 
I need an outline of God-focused dating, preferably a book and Bible verses. My parents divorced, and I've only had sex-focused relationships. I don't know what a healthy relationship looks like. That's, uh, man, thank you for sending that, whoever you are. That's, uh, that's really, really good. Um, so the first thing I would tell you is um, before I start to recommend books and before I would start to tell you, like, you know, follow this path or whatever, is to find a, if you're a man, find a godly man. If you're a woman, find a godly woman who is ahead of you in the journey who can walk you through their life experience. Because the, 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 the bottom line is there is not a book that is going to accurately walk you through a dating sexual ethic in a way that is going to work for you. In fact, um, some of the, I, I don't know how much you follow all of the crazy evangelical complex controversies that go on, but um, Joshua Harris, who wrote I Kissed Dating Goodbye right before he kissed Jesus goodbye, you remember that whole thing? Um, so anyway, his, um, th that, that whole movement has been um, re really kind of pushed away. The purity movement has really been uh, kind of uh, stepped away from by the church. And it's fascinating to me because I keep thinking, like, so is, does that mean we're saying we're now for the impurity movement? Like, I'm not really sure, like, what the, like what's the alternative here, you know? But um, the, the reason is, and I totally get what's being said, the reason is there was a way of talking about sexual purity that overpromised and underdelivered. It said, like, if you remain sexually pure and you wait for your spouse, you're going to have the most glorious, incredible sexual relationship you've, like, you could not even imagine. It's going to be unbelievable. Well, nobody can promise you that. Like, that's just not, that's, that's not within the scope of Joshua Harris or anybody else to promise you. Um, and on the other side, there's this sense of um, we're, we're going to pressure people into making decisions and then guilt them into keeping those decisions. Well, neither one of those things falls in line with a biblical sexual ethic. But that's what happens when your primary guidance is through a book that um, I, I don't know Joshua Harris. I've never met the guy. Um, my guess is, at least when he wrote the book, his intent was to really help people um, live pure lives in freedom, I'm guessing. Um, I know there's a lot of people, because I do know some of the people who've written those books, and their goal is that people would live in freedom. But it's really hard to get that from a book. So the first thing I would tell you is find somebody who's ahead of you who you can have really, really honest conversations with. That will help you a ton. That'll help you more than, more than anything else. And then I would tell you, as it relates to um, uh, dating and uh, books to, to dig into, I think the best way to handle um, the dating concept, dating's not in the Bible, by the way, that whole idea is not, not biblical. I'm not saying we should go back to, like, you know, trading wives for sheep and stuff, like, that's weird, but um, it's just not, that's not the way they did it back then. Um, I actually think the best way to handle it is to get a beautiful vision of marriage and to have that vision of marriage out ahead of you. And if you have that vision of marriage out ahead of you and somebody who's walking with you, that's going to be far healthier for you than the, the, um, a, a healthy dating ethic. That and stay off of any app that makes you swipe one way or the other. That's not good. Don't do that. Uh, but it, that, that process of, um, of seeing what marriage is intended to be and having that out in front of you as a, as a jewel, not where it's perfection, not where it's utopia, but in a way that says, like, there's a way that God intended this, and I'm going to pursue this thing that God intended. I think that's 
far, far healthier. So again, I, I, recognize, I recommended uh, Tim Keller's book, Meaning of Marriage. That's a really, really good one. Um, depending on your, um, the, the way that you read and how deep you read, um, John Piper has a book called This Momentary Marriage, which is, uh, which is quite good. Uh, Gary Thomas has an older book now called Sacred Marriage, which is also really good. Both of those speak to formation more than they speak to um, practice. And so both, both of those are really, really good. And I have about 15 others I can recommend to you, so you can talk to me individually, um, and I'm glad to do that as well. But um, I will give you at the end of the class a recommended reading list that'll be a little curated, that'll kind of walk you through a couple of the things, um, why I'm recommending to read them. I'm saying that at the end of class, not at the beginning of class, because I don't want you to read ahead and figure out what I'm saying and decide you're not coming to class. I want you to actually hear what I'm saying first, because some of you are like, if he's recommending that, I'm not coming. So yeah, don't do that. Um, all right, I don't have any more questions right now. You are welcome to send questions in between. Um, so you can send questions between now and next week. That's totally fine. Thank you, by the way, for nobody um, putting on my little podium Brian Cannell for sex. That makes me really happy. I was so afraid that was coming this week. So yeah, thanks for, thanks for that. Um, and I'll be around for the next little bit if anybody has any questions. Let me pray for us as we go, and then I will turn off the microphone so you are welcome to uh, talk without being on the podcast. Jesus, thank you for your beautiful design. Thank you for the way that you have intended our sexual relationships to work. And God, I pray that as we, um, as we seek to express in really healthy ways what it means to be the sexual beings that you've created us to be, that you would help us to be formed and shaped into your image. God, that, that question, who am I becoming, needs to be on the front of our mind, not just in relation to our sexuality, but all of life. And so, God, would you teach us to be formed according to your, your beautiful design? God, thank you for this time to talk. I thank you for the conversations that will happen through the week following it. Um, and God, I pray for uh, good, healthy connections that will help us be formed into your image. And so, God, uh, bless us as we go. Help us to reflect your glory to the people around us through the rest of this week. In Jesus' name, amen.